It's taking a while to record here. I've still got the record button in the top left. Yeah, it hasn't gone red for me yet. There we go. Welcome to Coffee, Eggs and Inspiration. It's a weekly show that goes out over YouTube and as a podcast over all of the major channels. And each week I get to sit with an inspiring person and listen to them tell their story and share it with all of you. This week is no different. I'm joined by Jake Lazarus. Welcome, Jake. Hiya. Morning. Good morning, good morning. It's actually pretty early in the morning. It's 8 a.m. as we're filming at the moment. Uh, so Jake's very graciously joined me at this hour of the day. Uh, Jake is the co-founder of Kiki, which is a, a new streaming music streaming platform uh, aiming to be uh, in the top five streaming platforms in the world. Um, it's aimed, it's a different uh, type of proposition though, aimed at lateral music discovery. So think uh, music organized around genres into mixes, which Jake uh, believes and his team believes is the next form of playlist. Um, so places like Spotify and Apple Music will assemble a playlist that sort of gives you more of what you already like, uh, whereas the idea of Kiki is to help you discover uh, music around the edges uh, of the stuff that you like and take you into new places. Um, really interesting. I'm a, a subscriber myself. Uh, not that there's a subscription free. It's a, it's a free service, um, and it's, uh, it's super interesting. I do, I do suggest it. So Masters of Niche. Um, launched yeah. during uh, lockdown, uh, 400,000 plus users in less than a month. So there's uh, quite a few people out there that agree with Jake and his team on the hypothesis that this is good. This is actually Jake's third startup. The first was an internet radio, uh, which built to one of the biggest, or I think the biggest uh, teen radio stations in the world. Um, Jake's uh, now out of that business. Uh, having successfully grown it. Um, his next business was a direct social media marketing company. So he's in TikTok and uh, other forms of social media and now Kiki. Uh, so wonderful, um, innovative track record at a young age. Let's talk about the difference between a playlist and a mix and tell us a little bit more about your philosophy with Kiki. Thanks. Yeah, I, I think... The way that we've been viewing it and the way that people, have, I mean, the people have been viewing it for the last 10 years, but on the fringes, is that the evolution of music has been from single track to, you know, EP to album. And then it was the playlist. And each time you're getting further and further away from, from the artist, the control is getting into the hand of labels and now it's in the hands of playlisters and, and the DSPs. We think the evolution of that is, is the mix format. Because not only are you getting more of a live experience with the, the, the tracks blended into each other, um, but you're also experiencing music as, in the way that the creator intended. Um, you're getting things like context. When you are on a playlist and you press shuffle, there is no context, there's no order, there's no build up, um, there's no start and end. And so it's really the shuffling of playlists um, that I think has really left music um, for the worse. And so, what we've done and what we will continue to do is find the best curators of music, be those DJs, radio presenters, uh, you know, archivists, collect collectivists, and get them to put together songs that they think work really well together and blend them in um, using DJ equipment. 
And so what you end up with is an hour, two hours long experience that isn't the kind of fragmented um, back and forth stop and start of a playlist, but it's so much more immersive. And I, I think at a time where pretty much the live music industry is, is, is a non-starter for at least this year, if not the next year, um, it, it's certainly a way of, of keeping that, um, you know, keeping people engaged in music um, and, and really letting people access new stuff that they haven't really heard before. So I, I think it's a no-brainer for the mix format. Um, I don't think it's going to replace the playlist, um, but certainly I think the, play, the, the playlist has had, had its day in a lot of ways. So in a, in a way, I've been listening to some of your, your mixes this morning on Kiki. Uh, there's no shuffle uh, function as such. You, you tune in, you listen to a volume, and uh, in some of them there's an introduction from the, uh, the producer or the mixer at the start, uh, and it just takes you on a journey in that sense. Who's your, uh, how do you imagine your listener? I mean, you, you talked about a one or two hour session. What is, what is your ideal listener? What are they doing and how are they listening? When are they listening? So I, I think our, our plan with this is to, is to really cater to how the normal teenager, 16 to 24 year old being our key demographic, how they engage with music. So we haven't really got a favorite type of listener although I'll go into how we internally uh, rank listeners, which I think may be interesting um, for, your, for your audience. But what we want to do is for the platform to represent how people listen to music in real life. Um, and so if you are on, I mean, SoundCloud's a good example. SoundCloud have a playlist called Sleep, and they have one called Party, and they have one called Run. Um, and most of our audience aren't, aren't really using music in that way. It's far more nuanced. It's music to get in the bath into, music, you know, before you're going out, or the music when you had the party and come back for an after party it's music to run to it's music to go to the gym to there's thousands of different activities and different contexts that people want to listen to music um, there's a mixture of active and passive but no platform has has done it properly to give you music for whatever activity or whatever mood or mindset you are in and we're still a long way off off doing this but that's really our ultimate aim um, so the, the types of listeners that you have you have um two core types and a third type coming in. The third type is really a, a nostalgic listener. We're seeing um, a slightly uh, older demographic, around 30 to 50, using the platform and re-engaging with genres that they really haven't listened to for a long time. Normally the drum and bass, the rave stuff, some garage, some R&B from the 90s. Um, and most of, these, most of these listeners really listen to radio, so they couldn't tell you the name of all the tracks, but they know that they like a certain DJ or a certain sound. So. The nostalgic listeners really um, is an interesting area that we hadn't really anticipated for. Um, and we've certainly got lots of investors who fall into that category, which is always good news. Um, but the, the first and second really is someone who knows exactly what they're looking for is like a diehard fan of a certain genre. So I'm a massive techno fan, as an example. Um, and I go on the site, I know exactly what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a very specific type of techno that I like to sink my teeth into. Um, the other type of listener is just the curious, someone who doesn't really know too much about music, but is open to suggestion. Um, these are the kind of the friends that you drag along to festivals, people that listen to radio. Um, so that, that's really our, our three um, primary audiences. And there's, there's always some overlap, but we're seeing some really interesting um, trends appearing between which genres are doing best with, with which types of audience. I would say I probably flip between nostalgic and curious and, uh, and, and love to be introduced. You know, I, I feel like I don't have the time uh, to 
just graze uh, and and happen across stuff. So um, I, I kind of get it. Uh, I like the I like the proposition a lot. Let's talk about from an artist's point of view. So if you're a musician, uh, a DJ, a mixer, a beat producer, what's the advantage of being on Kiki and uh, versus a Spotify or an Apple Music, etc.? Yeah, so I think there's what we're providing for artists is, is a an entirely different package to what um, you are getting on on a major DSP. When we're cert we're certainly smaller than pretty much all of the major DSPs, and so we're, we're not able to offer you know, the, the promise of gold in the same way that other platforms are. So we offer a rate which is higher than the major DSPs. It's about three times higher than Spotify's per stream. But at the streams that we're experiencing currently and at the streams a lot of independent artists are getting, it's a bit of a false promise to pretend that you're going to, you know, this is going to change your life from a, from a financial perspective. And so what we've done is shifted really our marketing to artists and our, our value proposition away from that they're still providing, you know, money as as a minimum, as a as a you know, as a point of fairness, but really focusing on the creative side, giving them full creative freedom, um, giving them visual assets, basically providing a lot of the support that a major label would provide, including marketing, essentially marketing spend, to really give independent artists and DJs, etc., um, a much bigger um, support package. Most of our artists, particularly on the DJ side, are not signed to any labels um, or any management companies. And so our offer is really to provide a lot of help, expertise where um, you know that, that may be inaccessible to them. It extends, again, we've got three recording studios now in London. We rent them out for free. Um, so if you have a show with us, you're able to use them. I think they're all in Shoreditch currently. We've got one in New York coming soon. Um, so you're, you're basically you're part of the family. And if you're working with us, the interest for us is to give the artist as much exposure as possible to the right crowd. Um, and that's really what we're attempting to do. I, I think the only additional thing to mention is a lot of what we would call an artist is much broader than a traditional idea of someone who sings or produces. If you're a DJ, the other, the, the other platforms don't really cater to your, to your expertise. And there's very few platforms actually monetizing DJ mixes or radio shows. They're monetizing tracks. And so we've got a somewhat broader interpretation of what an artist and creative is. Um, and so when we're talking about artists, we, it could be a DJ, it could be a radio presenter. It could be someone who you know, has been digging in, in rare groove for 40 years. It can, it can really, you know, the definition is really so broad that we can encompass large parts of the industry that haven't benefited from the, from the streaming uh, mania. Um, yeah. And the and the um, you know the a DJ is often sampling. They're taking chunks of uh, of other music and, and stringing them together. Music is a complex place. There are rights all over the place. This must be a, a licensing uh, nightmare for you. How do you handle that? Yeah, well, we're both now very familiar with with licensing nightmares from uh, previous encounters we've had. But I th I think. The, we're saved by almost a technicality in the industry, which is radio licensing is significantly easier than single track licensing. And because a mix is, you know, you're not able to change the order of the songs. It's not on demand playback of single tracks. Um, we fall under the PRS and PPL licensing rather than going to each major label um, and concocting a, you know, a, a large legal agreement with them. Um, so we're licensed in the same way that I guess Pandora is or has been in the States. Um, the same way the internet radio is licensed. And so it really 
the, the rates that you're paying are, are, are around the same, but the complexity about reporting is far less. And so you certainly haven't got a lot of the issues around, um, you know, who to pay, which publisher to play, uh, who wrote the song, has the, has the rights been uh, transported, et cetera. Um, and so any, for any um, new streaming platform, it'd always be my recommendation to go with the radio licensing model. Um, if you're doing mixes, you'll eventually have to, you know, you'll eventually have to craft your own deals with, with the majors. But it, it provides so much financial and legal overhead that you know it's, it's very un, unattainable for most uh, startups to do that. Interesting. So your Kiki is really positioned as a radio uh, service as opposed to um, you know a, a streaming platform in the in the traditional sense, and uh, that helps you simplify things. Did I get that right? Yeah. So we're a we're a radio we're a radio platform with unlimited channels. I mean, that, that's how that's described. It, there's still complexities around um, the, le the licensing framework as to how territories work. Still, you still have that, you still have that issue. Um, a good example being you're allowed overspill. So our UK license gives us 10% overspill. So that's UK and then 10% of whatever every other country decides to listen. Once a country gets more than 10%, which looks like it's going to be the United States, we're then going to go to, the, to their licensing authorities, which is sound sound exchange um to do a deal there so there is the infrastructure to for smaller companies to really dip their toe into radio where there isn't really the infrastructure to do it with um single track licensing interesting and the, and the rates you pay i think you mentioned three times the rate of spotify spotify of course is a a subscription service or mostly a subscription service uh yours is an ads based model that's the that's the funding model uh, I know you have strong views, Jake, about subscription versus ads models. Uh, talk yeah. to me about that. Well, I think subscription models really work where the value proposition is is right. So I think Netflix is is one of the one of the, the best platforms to illustrate this. I think Luminary is one of the best examples against this. If you're providing, you know, if you're providing your user with a new experience with so much value, then it makes sense for a subscription service. Um, and there's there's so many subscription services now. There's, there's one for cheese, one for fish. One came out yesterday for for, for bikes. You can subscribe to have a bike. Um, so it's certainly the way the economy is going, that you're not owning anything and you're just renting things um, forever. I, I, I'm against that in some ways, but I, I see the value that it can bring in opening up new areas of the economy um, to different parts of society. So conceptually, I think they're great in this space. I think Luminary has failed remarkably to do it. I think when you've got Spotify for £7 a month or, or $9 a month, I think it is, it's very difficult for Kiki to match that when we're offering so much less at this current stage. So we've got 450 different creatives signed up. Uh, we've got another 200 in the pipeline, but you can't find everything that you want. You can't find every song that exists. And so the value proposition of Spotify, which is every song ever for $9, or Kiki, which is, you know, some songs that we like for $4 doesn't make sense from a price perspective. And so we, Kiki would have to have every single musical niche covered and such a depth of catalog that you never run out of stuff to listen to before it made sense to do a subscription service. Um, I think people that do services, you know, with, with average platforms or not enough content are ripping off their end user. Um, the benefit of us going ad, ad funded is entering markets where people cannot afford those subscription services so there's a big emerging markets play with with our both with our catalog um 
we've got over, I think, 120 hours of content from Africa now. We've got a similar amount from Latin America. Um, and so we're, we're looking to enter these markets where $9 a month would be completely, you know, it's just not feasible for the average person. And that even extends to the data usage. So got quite nerdy about this, been um, experimenting with low latency streaming, for example. So if you were in um, parts of Africa, even, even um, parts of like Lagos still have pretty spotty internet. Um, listening to Kiki is not only free to do, but also cheap on your data bill. And so it's really making us competitive in the markets where a subscription service is hard to enter. That's a really interesting angle. Um, I know the music scene is vibrant all over Africa. And you mentioned Lagos and Nigeria in particular. 200 million people, uh, and if uh, they like using it, that's a pretty big market. Uh, five times, you know, five times the size for the UK right there. So uh, interesting stuff. This takes us into the advertising world, and you and I have had past discussions about the future of advertising, and I want to get into that on on, on this uh, discussion. Uh, you've come from an influencer marketing background. That was one of your businesses. Uh, an influencer uh, marketing is is about using the footprint, the social following of an individual, and associating, uh, using that uh, association to to pair with a brand in order to reach that audience. Um, and there are many pundits in the industry who believe influencer marketing is the future. Uh, it's it's obviously getting bigger and bigger, um, and and some on the extreme end would say it will eventually eclipse or largely eclipse uh, traditional forms of marketing and advertising. What's your view? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think the picture that you've painted and the picture that a lot of uh, supposed pundits are painting, I think it's one of the most depressing, um, like dystopian views of society that you can have. You know, I, I think uh, people know what an ad is. The ad agencies and, and and brands have attempted to kind of hide them in in plain sight you know we had sponsored content which is um probably one of the most annoying things on the web i think it's tabula the company that does most of that now you know, when you're scrolling down an article and you see at the bottom 10 things you wish you knew on a slideshow and it's just it's, it's just not you know you can't even imagine that anyone's paying for that um with influencers it's kind of the same it's become very saturated the end user now knows very um very well versed in the fact that you are selling something um you are making money off of it in the early days if um if a 16 year old girl had said you know i really like this skincare routine um people wouldn't necessarily have known what the the value chain was coming through since legislation has changed you now have to have hashtag ad in in there um, and everyone's doing it under the sun i think a big percentage of any um particularly young girls, TikTok or Instagram feed um, is sponsored stuff. On Go on TikTok now, Charlie D'Amelio, who is the queen of TikTok, she's doing about two or three brand partnerships a week. Um, I've seen both Hollister and American Eagle on there now. And so it, it, it seems like it's accelerating really quickly. But the, the question is, you know, what, number one, what is the conversion? And number two, it looks like it's just going off a, a bit of a cliff edge. Um, so I, I, I think... It's, it has to be about trust with advertising. I think brands have to earn the trust of users back. Um, and I think slipping them in, you know, in the feeds of 12-year-old of girls or 12-year-old boys on TikTok is not necessarily 
what I would call a trust-based system. I think it's pretty aggressive. I think the tactics involved in the influencer market, you pretty much get away with what you can. You try and find an influencer with no management. You know, people talking about micro-influencers or pico-influencers. Um, it, it, it's massively aggressive. And I, I think the, the social effect of that is that eventually you don't really trust anyone. Any of these influencers are just not trusted. You know, you're, you're, tr you're going to them for their content because you relate to them on a personal level, you're, you're interested in them or you want to learn from them. But all of those things are now at risk if, if they're just the mouthpieces of various brands and not even brands that they like or use, brands that are paying the highest price. Um, and so I'm certainly, having been in the space, um, I certainly find it somewhat repulsive, <laughs> I would say. Um, and I think anyone, anyone with kids, if they, if they knew, if they were just watching their kids' TikTok feed for a day, and seen the, the volume of, of brands um, attempting to reach them um, in quite sneaky ways, I, I think um, there would be a, a far bigger public backlash against influencer marketing. Um, I've even seen one, I think it's the company Daz, which I think someone's told me is a washing product, um, doing a campaign on TikTok, trying to reach 10 year olds. Um, there's something about that that just seems a little bit off for me. You've leveled there. So I, I take it your view is that actually the future of advertising is advertising uh, in the more traditional sense as yeah. a brand message delivered uh, in the context or in the stream of other content that uh, a user is um, enjoying. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's it. I think, I think on, on the fundamentals, um, yeah, the future of advertising is, is advertising. <laughs> you know, it's traditional advertising. The TV format works really well. I think the TV, uh, you know, the, the TV listening numbers or viewing numbers is obviously declining, particularly amongst uh, the 16 and 24s. But, the, you know, the, the video on demand um, advertising is pretty, is alive and kicking. Um, th there's just so much more you can do when, when the brand is going directly to the user. Even something like a click through. If you're doing an influencer campaign, the biggest issue is, you know, what's the conversion? You can't click through on, on a TikTok video. You can't even click through on an Instagram story until you have 10,000 followers. Um, so there's so many, the, the industry is basically a hack. The influencer industry is a, is a hack around user-generated content. Um, if you were a brand trying to get conversions, you'd want someone to be able to actually click on it and go where you want them to go. Um, and I, I think, I think um, an interesting development on TikTok is now that brands are advertising in TikTok directly. Um, I've seen Apple in there. I've seen Deliveroo in there. I've even seen the, the government's NHS track and trace program in there, um, which was probably the first uh, first time I actually felt proud to, to be a part of, to be part of the UK. Um, it's very rare that the, the British government is ahead of the curve on any kind of advertising standards, if anything at all. So, um, yeah, there's people do brands going directly to TikTok. Influ Instagram's been doing it for a while now. I think that is. Um, a far better way for brands to reach the user base. Um, you don't even want to get into the discussion about fake numbers or fake shares or, or you know, the kind of darker side of Instagram. In particular, I think that the, the stat that I've seen recently is about 25% of all follow, followers aren't real. Um, so brands really paying through the nose to reach people that are either uninterested or, or don't exist. Um, so if we if we come back to advertising in the traditional sense, and I, I'm going to um, 
I'm going to play devil's advocate rather paradoxically here because I happen to work at, at Google, which earns a lot of its money from advertising, and, and, and YouTube in particular is, is exactly that the form that you uh, describe. It's uh, an, uh, an in-stream, either skippable or unskippable um, uh, brand uh, ad, advert. Uh, yes, it, it, it strikes me that the, the traditional form of advertising essentially tolerated interruption you know it's a an understood trade-off um, people don't go uh, and watch tv or youtube or any other video on demand platform to see the ads <laughs> most don't any anyway uh, they understand though as part of that deal they will see ads and hopefully uh, if the algorithms are working well those ads will be very relevant uh, to what they're interested in um, yeah, I, I think I think that's a, it's a good way of viewing it. It's almost if you look at like the original philosophies behind government, you know, it's, it's a necessary evil. You, you need you need to the content that you're viewing needs to be funded somehow, um, and you're not paying for it, so someone has to pay for it. Um, so I think it's been seen as a necessary evil. I think where, um, and I'm not really in the interest of of uh, slighting the glorious overlords that are Google uh, in too much detail. I think this is going out on YouTube. Um, but one of the things that they don't do so well is the frequency of adverts. And you end up, you know, you want to watch a video and you get two or three adverts um, before you can get to the content. Um, and that normally leads to me and a lot of the user base to kind of disengage. So it's definitely a balancing act in terms of the frequency of the advertising. Um, and I think certain platforms are trying to push, you know, for their, for their margins and their profitability. Um, what Kiki is certainly looking to do is to have a maximum amount of adverts per hour. Um, I think it's about five times less than what YouTube is having currently. So we, we, we'd obviously like to make more money. We'd like to give our creatives more money. Um, but certainly we don't want to annoy our entire user base. Um, and so there's certainly a fine line between you know, what people are willing to, to kind of to sit through and engage with and, and what they're not. Um, and it really falls into two parts, whether it's number one, the frequency of ads, and number two, how targeted they are. Um, you need to get both right before the, you know, the, the advertising experience can work. If, if a brand I'm interested in is advertising to me, it's, it can be a value add even. I think people forget that, that it can enhance the experience to some extent if done properly. Um, I think it's kind of been ruined by a lot of people not doing it properly um, and, and somewhat getting a, a bit of a bad name. I think you've hit the nail on the head. So, uh, you know, advertising can be not a, tolerated interruption, but a welcome interruption and even a value add, if it's well targeted, it's highly relevant, it's creatively awesome, you know, it's interesting and, and stimulating uh, to watch or listen to. And, you know, I think that that probably is the evolution and future of advertising. I know, uh, thank you for your feedback on uh, frequency at YouTube. <laughs> we love feedback. I'll pass that, pass that back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, we found in the early days of, of YouTube, for example, you can't just port a 30-second commercial from TV over to a video on demand platform and expect it to work in the same way. It's kind of like radio with pictures. Um, but a six-second yeah. bumper ad, you know, that, that sort of uh, skips you, you know, delivers a, a quick message and then takes you straight to the content works quite well. And, you know, we're certainly still learning, and I think brands are too. Fascinating views. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think just on that quickly, there's something that um, I was chatting with one of our brand partners with yesterday on this front, which I think might be the evolution of that, um, which is sequential advertising. So 
it's tough to distill a brand message in, into six seconds, although doable. But if you, you know, you, you've got your six second uh, ad and the next time you came back, you'd get, you know, a sequential, the next six, the next uh, six seconds of it. Um, could be a really interesting way to re-engage users. So that's something that we're looking at really closely. Sort of serialized, you can choose to, to flip into the next one. That's interesting, interesting view. Uh, we talked a little bit about TikTok already. Um, obviously, some controversy playing out in the US at the moment. I don't want to get into the uh, politics of it, uh, but uh, it's clear that um, with the uh, with the looming uh, ban of, of TikTok and WeChat, uh, you know, the ecosystem is evolving rapidly. What, what are your observations on the sort of ecosystem? Do you think about the big social islands, the video on demand platforms, the music platforms? How, how's it all changing from your perspective? Yeah, I think there's two, there's two points to it. And without um, going too deep into the politics, the, the banning of a social media platform or the forced sale of it is really worrying from, from an entrepreneurial perspective. The reason people build things in the United States, I mean, apart from the access to cash, is is you know the legal framework and the willingness of a government to embrace you know technological innovation. And I think this is definitely sending the wrong signal, um, and certainly falling into the same trap that that China have been doing with their you know people in the United States. Many people, even in the Trump government, who have derided the, the firewall that Trump has put up. That, I'm sorry, that China has put up, and then basically doing the exact same thing. So I think it really sends um, a really negative sig signal to most of the technology industry. Um, and I'm certainly surprised at how quiet um, a lot of the US tech industry has been about this, certainly when they are getting this kind of treatment in China, they are, you know, they are up in arms about it. So I think, I think it's a negative, it's a really worrying trend. I think um, off of the politics and onto the platforms, um, it's an interesting one. Most platforms really start um, with a clear goal. You mentioned earlier um, before this call, Instagram being really for, for photographers. Um, you know, initially Facebook was a way to connect with your friends. If you remember those days when, when people did that. Um, TikTok initially, you know, if you look at what Musical.ly was prior to being acquired, it was a way to dance, you know, to lip sync to, to a certain track, Twitch, started pretty much as a gaming live streaming thing all of these companies are now you know very far from where they started you've got uh musical acts now using twitch instagram is just everything tiktok is now everything um facebook is actually everything <laughs> i think there's pretty much everything on facebook um, not that any of our demographic would be using it um so i think when you've got that kind of cycle where something starts with a single purpose and then keeps expanding, probably to acquire user base, probably to you know please investor bases, you end up having opportunities to try and satisfy what that platform initially was set up for. Um, and so I, I would not be surprised if you start seeing more photography-based social media springing up because Instagram is so convoluted. That that would seem to make sense to me. Um, and from a music perspective. Um, there are certainly loads of there are existing platforms who have attempted to do what Kiki has done from a mixed perspective, and due to investor pressure or you know chasing user bases, have widened themselves. So Mixcloud being a good example, Mixcloud is now the home of long form audio, which you know, which means quite a lot of things. 
Um, and so when an, a, a big player goes very broad, there's room for smaller players to really own the original niche that they were formed for. Um, I think that's a really interesting play um, that if, if you're a young entrepreneur or you're, you're a startup looking at the spaces, the best spaces to look at are the spaces vacated by, by the larger, larger players. Um, and that's traditionally how I've you know, picked markets to enter. Um, because the market's already validated. If you were to set up a photography-based social media, um, you know it works because Instagram's done it. I think VS Co has also tried to do it. So you know, you know the foundations work. Um, so it's really just a marketing play. And so it's a really interesting um, time for ecosystems. And I think um, I read a really interesting article about some of them being too big to fail. Certainly Facebook being so, so big that it, it's really tough to see how you know, what the ramifications would be for it to fail. But certainly seeing a few of these platforms being rolled up into each other um, will leave a bit more space. There's a lot of pressure for a music artist or even a, a user to be, you know, to have so many accounts and everything. Um, and that certainly seems unsustainable um, to keep the user's attention on, on 10 plus different platforms. So I think you'll see a few of them merging. I think you'll see a few of them dying and a lot more niche ones coming onto the market, which I think is really, really interesting. It's very interesting to hear your analysis and, uh, you know, so what started as sort of quite distinct and separate islands have become increasingly merged and, and that creates both overlap and um, lacunas, gaps that others can move into. It It strikes me as one gap that hasn't yet been filled that I've seen anyway. You may have a, a, view, uh, a view on this, um, is the intersection of social and music, by which I mean in music most mostly... Um, it's a push system. Uh, music is, is produced, uh, it's made available on digital streaming platforms and, and platforms like YouTube, and then it's consumed. But there's not a lot going back the other, uh, other way in terms, uh, there's some community um, you know, feedback and, and so on. But the production of music you know, um, is, is not yet, as far as I've seen, crowdsourced or socially sourced in that sense, it's socially consumed, but not socially produced. What's your view on that? Do you think I'm right or wrong? Uh, I, I think it's certainly an interesting angle. I, I've always, I, I for one, have never been a fan of social media. I'm not really a user of social media. And I, I, I kind of get too nerdy into the kind of psychology and user experience of it. So I, I'm probably not the best person to ask in terms of whether I think it will work. Um, because I'm not, I'm not naturally of that world. The, the things that I've done in music have on purpose been on the other side of, of the social spectrum. Um, I've, there's been a few different companies that have tried to socialize music. Um, I think the people that have done it best have just been the comment section. SoundCloud, comment, SoundCloud used to be the place for social listening. Um, it had this great feature called Groups, which everyone who uh, we chat with from a producer perspective loves. Um, that they killed a few years ago um, for undisclosed reasons. So the comment section on YouTube um, for certain creators and on SoundCloud really was the place where social interaction was happening. And if you, on SoundCloud, you could put up a, you know, just a half finished beat and people could comment on it and give their feedback and you could kind of take that feedback and go and go off with it. Um, so th there is a precedent for social interaction um, with producers and in different elements of the production process, I think a few companies have tried to bring the you know the fan and the and the artist closer together, um, and they've always ended up being fairly convoluted. I think Scooter Braun gave it a go 
few years ago with a company called Backstage, um, which seemed, seemed to um, really miss the mark, I would say, although it wasn't a particularly avid user of it. Um, so if someone like that is trying to get behind it and you know putting Justin Bieber on there and, and it's not working, I, I'd suggest that it's an interesting challenge, maybe. Um, I think music production is quite, it's, you know, it's quite a skilled profession. And so whether the, like a layman is able to, to properly interact with that process, I think would require some new technology that, um, you know, I, that I have not seen that exists yet. So you'd have to make it accessible to, to a layman before they could really be, um, you know, true fan engagement, although you could have collaboration. And I think an interesting thing that I'm looking for, um, if you talk to our design team, the talk of the town is Figma. Um, which just for the audience, if you don't know what Figma is, Figma is, is a, a design tool um, that has replaced Sketch. So if you're trying to design an interface or an experience, you, you typically had used Sketch. Um, and now Figma is the same as Sketch, but it's online and in sync. Um, the reason this is relevant is I would like to see a production tool go cloud-based um, and in the web so that multiple people could work on a file at the same time without having to be you know, sending files across and versioning. If someone could pull that off, then I, I, I think certainly a collaborative production tool would be possible. Well, it's absolutely fascinating as ever to talk to you, Jake. Uh, I really love the way that you think about the industry uh, from a technology point of view, also from a music point of view. I'll leave the final word to you. There's people watching, I'm sure, who are coming out of school or maybe coming out of university, uh, budding entrepreneurs, perhaps people later in their career or at a career pivot. Um, with all of your experience so far as an entrepreneur, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, I think I've given this answer before. And I wasn't very eloquent with that, but I think the advice is just to not take people's advice on it. Um, there's so much um, literature and narrative about what to do, what not to do. You know, the right this is this is how you set up a company. This is the skills that you need. Um, if you look across any startup, everyone has a different story. Everyone has a different um, thing that they do good and things that they're not so good at. Um, the, the, the real thing would be to make yourself really valuable. Um, so whether that's just getting really good at a specific skill um, and then, you know, bunching together with co-founders who augment your skill set, I think that's the best way of doing things. If, if you're look, everyone looking for that, you know, that, that secret source or that golden bullet, I'm afraid it doesn't exist. Um, I've, I've never met a founder who had the same skill set that I had, and I've never met two founders with the same skill set or same interests. Um, I think it's a bit of a it's a bit of a, a falsehood to suggest that there's a, a personality type that is being an entrepreneur. Um, so I think the best advice is really just to focus on what you're interested in. Find a gap in the market that people aren't doing. If something, you know, if you look at a platform or you look at a service and you wonder, you know, why do they do it this way? It doesn't make sense. That's really your your call to arms, really, as a, as an entrepreneur. Finding the beauty in in tearing something apart and then rebuilding it from scratch. Um, so I think that's probably the best feedback. Um, that you know, the best the best inspirational um, message I can give is probably just to ignore all inspirational messages and just get on with. <laughs> what you're interested in and what you're what you're doing already don't take people's advice focus on what you're interested in find a gap pull it apart put it back together there's no golden bullet provocative as ever inspirational as ever jake lazarus thanks so much for joining me cheers craig thanks very much it's been interesting <laughs>